questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. In the face of unprecedented challenges to our food supply, such as out-of-control inflation, the mysterious destruction of several food processing plants throughout the United States, and a growing number of environmental disasters from hazardous chemicals, the need for preparedness and resilience has never been more important. Fortunately, there are voices of hope and inspiration that can guide us through these uncertain times. One such voice is Joel Saladin, a sustainable farmer and advocate who has spent decades pioneering innovative and regenerative farming practices. Joel's passion for sustainable agriculture began on his family farm in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. After studying English and communication at Bob Jones University, Joel returned to the farm and began experimenting with new and innovative farming practices. Over the years, he has become a leading voice in the movement for sustainable and regenerative agriculture. Joel has written numerous books, given countless lectures and workshops, and become a go-to expert for anyone interested in building a more resilient and equitable food system. In this interview, we'll sit down with Joel to discuss his insights on how individuals and families can better prepare for food supply disruptions and other crises, as well as how sustainable agriculture can help build a more resilient and equitable food system. Whether you're interested in homesteading, building a more sustainable future, or simply being better prepared for the unexpected, Joel's wisdom and experience are in high demand right now. So get ready to learn from one of the leading voices in sustainable farming and food systems as we explore some of the most pressing issues of our time. If you're interested in being more self-sufficient, building a more sustainable future, or simply being prepared, better prepared for whatever may come, stay with us. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time listening, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy. Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today. We also have rebounders, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Veritas and Sanitas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. And directly from Virginia, I'd like to welcome Joel Salatin. Hello, Joel, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? I'm doing great, and it's a real honor and privilege to be with you. It is my honor, Joel. I've heard about you a few months ago, and finally we got, got you on here. And it's so timely, Joel, because what's happening right now around the world, especially here in the United States, with all these chemical spills the food processing plants mysteriously burning, the chickens not laying eggs. I'm so curious to know what your point of view of all of this is. Yeah, so, you know, I, I try to not be a conspiratist. Um, I, 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 you know, there's something about saying the word conspiracy that suddenly makes you look like a nut. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and certainly I'm not going to suggest that there aren't nefarious agendas. 
Uh, I'm old enough to know that, that there are some fairly untrustworthy movers and shakers on the planet. <laughs> and you don't have to be a 007 uh, aficionado to believe that. But uh, but but I think what we're seeing, you know, uh, when Joel Arthur Barker wrote the book Paradigms and essentially created the word, brought it to the world back in the late 1970s, one of his uh, one of his principles of paradigms is that every paradigm eventually exceeds its point of efficiency. And, I, you know, those of us who have been who have been sounding the alarm about everything from genetically modified organisms to the food pyramid, putting Cheerios, Cheerios as foundational um, uh, on the chart and, and watching the health nutritional debasement and the erosion and, and you know, high path avian influenza and a, and a new lexicon of, of, of terminology. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're over 50, you didn't grow up using the words salmonella, campylobacter, listeria. Uh, in fact, the phrase food allergy was not even in your vocabulary. If you wanted a, you know, a birthday party for kiddos, uh, everybody got together and had a birthday party. Now you got to spend two hours calling each mom and saying, well, what's your kid allergic to? What can we serve? What we can't, you know, so, so we're seeing this, this, uh, a general degradation, uh, and I would suggest that it is the beginning. It is the beginning of the collapse of the um, the chemical, mechanical, industrial food system, and uh, and so it's 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 showing its ugly head in you know numerous points of disarray and dysfunction. But uh, you know, nature has certain laws. Uh, you know, there, there's a reason why an elephant is the size of an elephant is and a mouse is the size that a mouse is. A mouse the size of an elephant wouldn't be a very successful mouse, and an elephant the size of a mouse wouldn't be a very successful uh, elephant. So uh, so this idea that, that, that we can fundamentally, um, you know, uh, fiddle with fiddle with nature without any thought to ethical moral natural boundaries or protocols is um you know can, can land us in some hot water you said something interesting about allergies because i've always wondered the same thing growing up i hardly saw anybody with allergies maybe here and there but as you said now you have to call every mother when you have a birthday party to ask, is it peanuts? Is it this? Is it shellfish? So why right. do you think there has been a, such a dramatic increase in allergies in recent years? And what factors do you see as contributing to this trend? Yeah, well, I, I don't think that we know definitively what all the things are, but I, I will say this philosophically. Philosophically, when you when you commit violence against a system uh, to a certain extent, that system begins to fight back. If if I punch you in the nose, chances are uh, you're gonna you're gonna punch me in the nose or somewhere else. And and so so what we've done is we have taken um, a, a beautiful uh, uh, creation oriented platform, if you will, a, a biological platform that I believe life is fundamentally biological. And we have we have taken that platform and gone into it like a bunch of swashbuckling conquistadors, 
and uh, and adulterated it, abused it. We've we, we've confined our animals in con- concentrated animal feeding operations where they they live, uh, eat, and sleep in their toilet. Uh, it stinks to high heavens. They're breathing in fecal particulate all the time. You know, if, if we wanted to, uh, if we wanted to create a pathogen friendly system, you know, we, we would create what we've got in American agriculture. And then, and then of course, you know, we've got, instead of, uh, uh feeding the soil with, uh, with carbon, with de- decomposing, decomposing, uh, vegetable material, you know, we're, we're dumping, uh, chemical fertilizers in it, petroleum based chemical fertilizers, treating the soil as if it's some sort of a, uh, inanimate something to just be to be held up with uh, intravenous uh, injections of chemical fertilizers. And then you have the pesticides, the herbicides, and now the genetically modified organisms, the GMOs. Uh, every day there's another study coming out about about uh, how, you know, GMOs are not the same as their counterparts in, you know, in the rest of the system. And and so, you know, I, I don't know that I can put my finger on one thing, but but I, I can tell you that we have we have disrespected, I'll just say this, we have disrespected life. And when you disrespect life, uh, nature bats last. And I think that we're starting to see the, uh, you know, that kind of, of uh, balancing of the biological balance sheet, if you will. You know, the, these these words, you know, uh, Campylobacter, Listeria, uh, all these words that we now say with just everybody knows them, you know, I would suggest that these words are nature basically um, you know, kneeling before our assault saying enough, you know, uh, you know, enough chemicals, enough animals crammed in one house, enough Fecal particulate, fecal particulate breathing into my mucous membranes. Uh, you know enough adulteration in the system, and and that's where we are. I'm going to play devil's advocate for a moment because I'm sure some of my listeners are going to wonder: without industrial agriculture, how would we be able to produce enough food to feed a growing global population, especially giving soil degradation and and other environmental factors? Yeah, well. There's a, that's one of my favorite questions, and it's the most common question. The, the the most common question is, can this actually feed the world? Can we feed the world without chemicals and industrial agriculture? And the second one is next to it, which is, even if we could, can we afford it? So let, let's deal with the, can we actually feed the world this way? You have to realize that right now, roughly 40% depending on who you know what statistic you look at but somewhere between 40 and 45% of all human edible food on the planet is being discarded is being thrown away that has never happened in history uh we are we are throwing away more food than at any time in human history so there is certainly not a lack of food nobody in the world is hungry because there's not enough food I mean, the people are hungry. Yes, don't get me wrong. They're hung- but they're not hungry because there isn't enough food. They're hungry because, you know, uh, there's some warlord not letting a, a truck cross a, a Pakistani, uh, you know, ledge or there's, you know, there's some extortion or corruption or whatever going on uh, in, in an area or or just simply negligence. But uh, anyway, there there is plenty of food. That That's number one. Number two. Uh, and this is, I think, the, the the critical thing to understand. 
that the 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 biological approach uh, took a backseat to the chemical approach because World War One, World War II, the war efforts developed the 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 war effort financed and developed the chemical industry. We make bombs out of nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. Those are the three foundational fertilizers used in chemical agriculture, nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. That's what Justice von Liebig in 1837 as an Austrian chemist using vacuum tubes tubes determined uh, constitutes all of life, that all plant and animals are simply a reconfiguration of NPK. This began us down a path of a mechanistic view toward life as opposed to a biological view toward life, which which uh, got a, a, a huge benefit from World War I, World War II, where NPK were the foundations of ammunition. When the wars were over, we had massive stockpiles. We had a shortage of... of um, of labor because a lot of these farmers, you know, lost a son in the war or had one maimed or injured or whatever. And so you come to 1946, 47 and, uh, and, and the farmers presented a little bag of, of 10, 10, 10 chemical fertilizer, basically left over from the ammunition piles for the war effort, which paid for the mining, the distribution, the, 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 the chemistry, the manufacture, the, uh, the, the marketing, and made it very, very cheap, as opposed to compost, which Sir Albert Howard brought to the world in 1943, right in the middle of World War II. And, and he presented to the world a whole different pathway, which was a, a, a carbon-based, a, um, a decomposition carbon-based system, which is, of course, how nature preserves uh, preserved its, its abundance. And so, you know, you're a farmer in 1946, you lost one son, one son's, you know, injured and presented with the choice of either shoveling, 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 or putting on a little bag of cheap uh, uh, chemicals, which would you choose? So, you know, uh, uh, be gentle on old grandpa there, you and I in the same position may have chosen the same thing. Well, what happened was that it took a couple of decades for Sir Albert Howard's composting scientific composting method to to uh, um to get all the pieces around it that would make it efficient things like like chainsaws chippers black plastic pipe to deliver water to compost piles uh front end loaders uh a pto power takeoff powered um manure spreaders and tractors a little four-wheel drive uh tractors that didn't come for about 20 years by that time the chemical approach was entrenched and has now simply become uh, the, the orthodoxy of the day. The truth is, here's the truth, cut to the chase. If we had had a Manhattan Project for compost, not only would we have fed the world, we would have done it without three-legged salamanders, infertile frogs, and a dead zone the size of Rhode Island in the Gulf of Mexico. That was a strong statement right there makes me want to go to Ohio and find out for myself what's happening in East Palestine right now. What do you think are the long-term effects, the long-term effects of what we're seeing there? Yeah, well, um, I, 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 you know, I don't live there and all I, all I know is the, you know, the news reports that I'm seeing, I'm, I am hearing from some farmers in the area, unfortunately, who 
are are struggling now. Uh, their customers are leaving them because they're afraid their you know their their food is going to be tainted. Yeah. Um, so I, I will tell you this: I, I I don't I don't you know I haven't visited. I don't know any more than anybody else. And uh, you know my my trustworthy my my <laughs> my news my news trustworthiness is um, is uh, fairly low these days. Uh, but I, I will tell you that uh, that organic matter is the Alka Seltzer. It's the buffer. It's the it, it's the the sponge of the earth. And my favorite story on that is the Lufke family in Austria when Chernobyl blew. When Chernobyl blew, that radioactive cloud came down across Belarus and then ended up down in Austria and kind of kind of finished there in Austria in the truck farming region. Uh, so there was a lot of cabbage. Was, this, this was Austria after all, so, you know, cabbage and, and a lot of uh, uh, vegetables there in that region. And all the vegetables were radioactive, had to be destroyed. But when they checked the soil, there was only one farm that, that could immediately plant, didn't have any radioactivity in the soil. And it was the Lufke family uh, due to the fact that they had been using uh, a compost and it had built up the organic matter in the soil over 20 years. And so the organic matter acted as a buffer for these things. And so, um, and realize that all chemical fertilizers burn out organic matter in the soil. They make the microorganisms cannibalize each other, trying to stay alive. And it actually, it actually, uh, not only does it sterilize, it also, um, it also hardens and and burns out that organic matter. So on our own farm, just so you you know how this can be done, on our own farm, uh, in 1961 we averaged 1% organic matter. Today we average over 8% organic matter. So you can move organic. I mean, uh, uh, the, the U.S. North America before the Europeans came, averaged average somewhere between six and eight percent organic matter i mean you know you, you you can never have as much organic matter out on the coast where it's sandy uh you have higher organic matter you know where it's north and colder but anyway average somewhere uh between between you know four to seven eight percent um and, and and today you know the whole uh, north america averages you know about one percent organic matter. So we have lost this 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 softening, buffering, uh, toxin absorbing uh, capacity in the soil. You know there are all sorts of microbes and fungi and protozoa that eat chemicals that eat toxins. That's the way nature works. Uh, I mean, I mean, uh, for example, methanotrophic bacteria, methanotrophic bacteria. Uh, can pull down, we talk about cows, you know, cows burping and it's going to destroy the planet. Well, uh, healthy soil has enough methanotrophic bacteria in it to pull down the methane generated by a thousand cows per acre. Well, nobody's going to have a thousand cows per acre. The problem is methanotrophic bacteria goes dormant at under 4% organic matter. So nature has tons of, of safety valves, of protections built in uh, and, and and we just have to facilitate, encourage, respect, honor, and build those rather than destroying them. I think you're mentioning nutrients in the soil, and apparently because of industrial agriculture, using pesticides and chemicals, 
That's killing the worms. That's killing all these things that create maybe sulfur, for example. But what is your opinion on the relationship between soil health and human health? And, and do you believe that nutrient deficiencies in the soil are contrib contributing to health issues like we see in the United States, obesity? Uh, yes, for sure. Now, you know, um, we could debate obesity, I guess, but certainly nutrient deficiency. I mean, there are plenty of studies now showing that uh, today's vegetables, for example, broccoli, you know, you have to eat, you have to eat seven pounds of broccoli today to get the same amount of nutrition that, that it contained in 1940. Uh, we've had a serious degradation of, uh, of, of nutritional density in foods the uh the the bionutrient food association uh is putting together a uh a a, a tool um that that can read nutrient density in foods and one of the thing one of the ones they tested was carrots and they found that from the best carrot to the worst carrot uh you'd have to eat about 150 times the poorest carrot to equate to one carrot of the best kind there's that much variation that much variety you know we we and and the other thing too is we know now that the, there is a very very close relationship between the soil and our own microbiome in fact under a microscope they looked almost identical all the uh, the research the efforts that's gone into understanding the human microbiome Uh, is 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 giving us a new respect for uh, for diversity, diver the microbial diversity. Um, we the the secret, I think almost everybody that's studying the microbiome right now understands that the secret to microbiome health is diversity. Is you want as much variety as possible. Well, the same thing is true in the soil. You want as much diversity as possible uh, because all these different microorganisms do different things. You know, there there are there are uh, about seven billion in healthy soil. There are about seven billion um, beings. Everything from things you can see, like worms, uh, to things that you can't see. Most of them you can't see, obviously. But we are so ignorant about this. We we have only named ten percent of these microorganisms, 90% of them are still completely unnamed and we don't even know what they do. So, you know, we've named some gibberellins, azotobacter, actinomycetes, you know, we, we've, we've got some really, you know, we've, we've named some and we know some of the things that they do, but it's way, way more complex than that. And so when we, when we uh, um, simplify, simplify the soil, with chemical fertilizers and say, well, life is nothing more than nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. When we simplify the soil to that extent, we also then simplify our own microbiome. And now we're missing essential microbes that are necessary for, you know, for functions that we haven't even identified yet. So it's all about complexity, not simplicity. You said, again, you keep opening doors here. I remember when I talked to Dr. David Perlmutter, I learned this. He told me that serotonin is made 90% in our microbiome and 10% in our brain. I had no idea about that. So if we don't have enough nutrients in our microbiome or it's plagued with, say, genetically modified organisms and we're not absorbing those nutrients, could this be a relation? Is there a connection between this and depression 
and, and, and so many people taking psychotropics right now because the lack of nutrient absorption? Oh, yes, absolutely. Again, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a PhD. I'm not a, I'm not sure. a medical doctor. But, but um, you know, we, we're, seeing, we're seeing the connections in, in, in new, marvelous ways like we've never seen before. I mean, Finland, for example, Finland leads the world right now in their research showing that, that uh, children – raised uh with their hands in the dirt farm kids that that grow up in a you know in a in a stable with you know where parents take them out in the stroller to the to the barn all the time and the kids get a little bit of manure on their fingers and you know lick it um that those children their immune systems are way more functional and robust than children raised in the city and they've just replicated this over and over to the point that they're actually they've actually launched some initiatives to see if there's a way that they could bring farm soil into urban homes just for kids to touch, play with, you know, I don't know, um, you know, pet the porous bag, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but where they could actually encounter all of this uh, uh, diversity. Think about think about how fast. Our country uh, went through the the antimicrobial soap phase. You know, we got this antimicrobial soap, and it only lasted what two or three years. And suddenly, we realized, oh, you don't want antimicrobial. Uh, you open yourself up for you know for pathogens to actually uh, come in. And so, and, and so, you know, when it comes to biology to life, uh, there there's almost nothing that is supposed to be sterile. Uh, it's supposed to be a soup of microbial mix. And fortunately, 95% of all microbes are beneficial. Only 5% are not. And so what we want is we don't want sterile. What we want is a habitat that allows the good microbes to overcome the bad microbes in the battle for toxicity, pathogenicity, disease, you know, virus, all those kinds of things. And so, yes, there is a direct relationship between the nutrient density of your food and uh, and your and your own physical health. And and we can we can test this empirically. Uh, several years ago, for example, uh, our farm cooperated with eleven other farms around the U.S. in a study where we sent uh, eggs from our pastured chickens to a to a, a, a dietetics lab. I think it was Washington State, and. Uh, did a nutrient analysis on about 12 items. One was folic acid, for example, and the the official uh, uh, folic acid uh, uh, nutrition of an egg, according to the the USDA, I call it the US duh, uh, is uh, 48 48 micrograms per egg. And our eggs, our eggs tested 1,038 micrograms per egg. I mean, this is not a 10% deviation. This is massive. You know, grass-finished beef has 300% more conjugated linoleic acid in it than grain-finished beef. I mean, you can just go down the line and uh, and the, the nutrient profiles, the essential fatty acids, the all of the, the ratios and the balances are completely different um, depending on how the animal or how the plant is raised. So, you know, the 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 whole uh food system revolves around decomposition. 
And if you don't have decomposition, you can't have regeneration on the other side. And this is the great lie of chemical fertilization. Uh, you know, in, in a great big philosophical way, the idea that we can have that we can produce life without anything dying is a strike against the most foundational aspect of life. You have life, death, decomposition, regeneration, life, death, decomposition, regeneration. That's the circle. That's that's the cycle that we see in a compost pile, in a in a in a tree falling in the woods and rotting and, and feeding the next generation of trees. It, the whole carbon cycle uh of 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 vegetation decomposing and then being regenerated in, in new life it, it, uh, is an object lesson that that you can't have life without death. And of course, you know, religiously, we know, do you really want to live? Well, then you serve people. You die to self and you serve other people. That's the way to truly live. I mean, there, there's so many ramifications to this to this idea, but chemical fertilizers make, try to make a shortcut and say, oh, no, 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 we can have life without death. And now, of course, we're seeing the fake meat, the pseudo, the, the um, you know, the lab concoctions uh, that, again, are moving us into this notion that uh, that you can have that you can have life without death, and the truth is you can't have life without death. And that's the thing. People look at bacteria and fungi and all that, and that's the enemy. But that's part of the cycle of life. If you didn't have any of those, and you had a rotten corpse in the middle of the roadkill on the highway, then it would create more disease. But one, what you said, one of your eggs is more nutritional than a few dozen eggs we get at the grocery store. What is it that you're doing that's making them so much nutrition? Well, there's several things. One is that the birds uh, get, they're able to get grass, uh, grass because because we, we pasture them. They're not locked into, you know, into buildings. And so they get to, you know, eat more nutritious that uh, they get to, well, they get to express their chickenness. Uh, we think that, ex that allowing the chicken to express its chickenness uh, is, 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 <laughs> foundational to um you know to the to the robustness to the vibrancy of life you you can never be healthier than the food you ingest and if the if the plant if the tomato the uh, you know take tomatoes i mean tomatoes right now in the us you know they're not chosen for nutrition uh they're chosen for transportability and storability, you know, can, can, a, can a tomato bounce around in the back of a tractor trailer for 2,000 miles um, and still be saleable in the grocery store? Well, what do you do when you start selecting selecting cultivars uh, for, you know, for transportability and shelf stability? Uh, well, you, you gradually move toward cardboard. You don't you don't select for juiciness. You don't select for taste, quality, nutrition, or anything. You're selecting for storability and 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 transportability, which means that you're going toward uh, toward cardboard. And that's and that's exactly why kids don't like vegetables uh, because they all they're they're like cardboard these days. There's there's no there's no uh, burst of taste and and complexity. And anybody that's you know eaten a, a backyard tomato. Uh, versus one that's in the supermarket, you know, it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize there's a whole lot of difference in those things. So uh, our chickens, you know, we we raise them, you know, we use local uh, GMO-free uh, grains. They're outside, they get grass, they eat bugs, they scratch, they get exercise, exercise. I mean, 
I mean, the, the average chicken in a in a confinement chicken house doesn't even get exercise. They don't get fresh air. They don't get uh, sunshine. They, they, you know, and and they're they're constantly stressed. Uh, one of the most interesting things that we've learned from our from our chefs, and we supply numerous restaurants, um, some you know some really high quality ones, and it's interesting that that uh, across the board, all of our all our, you know, we're, we're in, we're in livestock primarily. I mean, we have a garden, but we, but we're, what, what we're in is, is uh, livestock. That's our, that's our bread and butter. That's our, our living. And, um, and what we found is that uh, um, all of our, you know, beef, pork, chicken, uh, it, turkey, it cooks about 20% faster than what's in the store. And, um, and one of the, one of the, one of the ideas that chefs have brought to us as to why nobody actually knows exactly why they cook uh, ours cooks uh, faster. But one of the um, ideas is that our animals are raised stress-free. And so they're not secreting adrenaline all their life. Most animals um, in the U S in, in industrial systems are raised in a stressful, emotionally stressful environment. And so when you're in stress, you know, you're secreting adrenalines. What does, what does that do? It, it tightens up the muscles and it, you know, it, 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 uh, changes the, the tissue. And so since ours are stress-free, um, they're, they cook easier. They don't have all the adrenalines in them. Well, does it, is it too far a stretch to say that if I'm using, if I'm eating stressed food, then perhaps I'll be more stressed. Again, I'm not. I haven't. I can't cite a, a study on this, but it, it does it make intuitive sense that if if I'm eating stressed tomatoes, stressed eggs, stressed chicken, stressed beef, that that at the end of the day, I'm going to show up those same uh, symptoms of stress that will be expressed in different ways in different people. But certainly, stress factors uh, would be there. I have a friend, and a few weeks ago, I uh, jokingly asked him, "Hey." He has a big chicken coop in the back of his, his farm, and he used to give me eggs all the time, and he stopped. And I said, I realize you're probably selling them because they're they're worth the weight in gold almost these days. And he said, no, no, no. They're, the, the chickens are just not laying eggs, probably because it's winter. And I started looking into this more and more, speaking to other farmers who were telling me the same thing until I found one farmer. You probably have seen the videos already where they had a couple of chickens that escaped their coop. And they started laying eggs, but the others were not. And they realized that the chicken feed they were giving them apparently was laced with some kind of synthetic hormone similar to birth control pills. And they started giving them goat feed. All of a sudden, voila, they start laying eggs again. Have you heard about this? Yeah, yes, I have. I will admit it's the first time I've heard it. I've heard the the lace with a with a synthetic um uh whatever fertility hormone. Um, that you're, you're giving me some new information here. Certainly we haven't had any problem with ours. Ours are doing great. Uh, but we, we have our, you know, we, we get our, our feed GMO free from local farmers from a local mill that, that mills it to our specifications, puts in it exactly what we want. And so we run that, we run that, that supply chain. I think, I think what you're the, the, uh, the window that you've opened here on this discussion uh, which affects you know homesteaders and people that are wanting backyard chickens and all that is is um, more and more as we feel oh what's the word we feel 
uh, disempowered. Uh, I mean, there are so many things that that you can make a list that you're frustrated about, but that you can't do anything about. And 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 that's that's a very frustrating thing in society. And it's it's driving the desire for self reliance, self sufficiency, homesteading, backyard gardens, canning, uh, you know, processing your own food, that sort of thing. And the the thing that I hear so much. Uh, from people now is I just want to disentangle. How do I disentangle from this dependency on a system that I can't see? I you know you 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 call and you get robots. Press one, press two. You can't talk to anybody that can help you. You get no service. You get no answers. And, and so we're we're just out here kind of uh, uh, floundering around in in a in a place that makes us feel feel whether it is or not, but it certainly makes us feel. Um, uh, vulnerable. It, it makes us feel vulnerable to to uh, either either uh, agendas, negligence, uh, you know, socio sociopaths, <laughs> whatever. And and that's that's not a comforting place to be when you're trying to feed your kiddos and you're you're trying to stay healthy. Let me tell you, if there is one thing that you want to hang on to when the you know if and when the wheels fall off. Uh, if there's one thing you want to hang on to, it's your health. You don't want to be sick when when society is starting to unravel around you, and so uh, and so this is driving uh, the interest now in culinary arts, domestic culinary arts, home butchery, um, you know, backyard food production. Uh, domestic culinary, you know, using your kitchen to 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 prepare, package, preserve um, foods, so that you actually see where it came from. I mean, the 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 canning, the the, the canning uh, and the freeze drying into uh, whatever you know businesses are just exploding with um, you know with with sales and interest right now as people start to you know uh, re you know rediscover. Uh, what you know, our great grandmothers did, frankly, uh, before there was a supermarket. Uh, they used to collect the the grease, the the fat, and during the depression. And you wonder why now, why they did that. I wish all these grandmothers were still with us to just give us some advice as to what's happening these days. But for those who are wondering, the common denominator that I found from all these people that have contacted me is that they bought the feed. The chicken feed from a place, I'm not going to name the name fully, but it's TR, and I'm not going to name the name, but it's TR Supply, if you know. If those of you know, no. But the thing is, Joel, that multiple studies identify chicken egg yolk antibodies that they block the binding of multiple SARS-CoV-2 spike proteins variant to human ACE2. So I wonder if there's a correlation here. They were trying to either introduce a new genetically modified type of eggs. And some people are sending me videos now of eggs they're buying at Walmart organic. And they show them to me in a video and it almost looks like plastic. Have you heard that too? And again, I, I know you don't deal with conspiracies. Leave that to me, but I'm very curious as to what you think. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I just, I just think that the food system, here's the thing you have to understand the 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 western i'll just say western food system is predicated on a notion that that 
that life is fundamentally inanimate, that food is fundamentally inanimate. It's and therefore uh, we can manipulate it. We can manipulate it like we would, um, you know, car parts. Basically, a, a pig is a car, um, and and we can, you know, uh, pull things, add things. A, a tomato is nothing more than a, you know, than a than a. A tomato is no more important than a, or just like a light bulb for a light bulb, and we can, uh, you know, manufacture however we want to, and and uh, the you know, the mysteries of life are way more complicated than that. There is, you know, our our own bodies are are, are literally, you know, our multi billion uh, microbes are trading <laughs> I've, I've got some boron i'll trade you for some of that uh, polysaccharide you know and 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 it, it, it's it's a literal there are there are literally billions of decisions being made in our bodies in the microbes in our bodies what they're trading what they're giving what they're doing how they're relating to each other those decisions are being made in the billions per second uh, as we live. And so, and so our belief here is the best approach when we, when we come to something, this mysterious, magical, and, and, uh, and complex is, well, what, what are the platforms? What are the protocols that have stood the test of time that have made things healthy or unhealthy? And, and so what we see, uh, for example, is well, animals move. Animals don't stay in the same place. Animals move. Um, they, you know, they, they they get exercise. They have fresh air. They have sunshine. They, you know, and, and these are things that we deny uh, our animals. They don't move. They don't get fresh air. They don't get fresh sunshine. They don't, they don't get any of this stuff. And uh, the same thing with, you know, with, with vegetables, uh, vegetable, you know, what, what is soil is soil, just uh, an inert substance that we, that we put IVs of chemicals in, or is it actually a, uh, I don't want to get too weird here on you, but, but is, is soil actually a, um, you know, a living organism? I don't mean that it's human, that it, that it thinks, but, but that it, that, that is it is so full of life and and this life is making exchanges and we now know um you know the fungi and the and the uh, the protozoa and, and and the thinking that goes on i mean think think about this you know um it's it's early spring here uh, tapping maple trees making maple syrup i don't know about you but i i i my favorite sweetener is maple syrup i mean it beats everything yeah. else anyway a maple tree. So you tap a tree, tap a maple tree, and a heavy a heavy wind comes up. The sap quits running. Why? Because the maple tree withholds its sap, which is like its blood supply. So in case the wind blows up, blows a branch and breaks a branch off, there will be sap to send up to heal that wound. If if the wind blows the the branch off, as soon as the wind stops, the tree gives you, um, you know, gives you sap. The 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 acacia trees in Africa, when the giraffes are, are grazing through the acacia trees, they secrete pheromones to change the phyto the the phytonutrient the phytochemical complexion of 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 neighboring trees to make them bitter, so the giraffes won't like them as much. It's it's a, it's a defensive mechanism. 
I, I, the, the you know the secret life of plants. I mean, there's books now on what we're finding of the the communicative capacity of plants and fungi and and these microbes to communicate to each other. The fact is, all of life is pulsing with sentience, is pulsing with relational uh, uh, trades and commerce, um, and and so. When we when we take a fundamentally mechanical view, whether it's to eggs or tomatoes or 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 you know uh, pork chops, uh, whatever that, when we come to it with a mechanical view, then yeah, when you say organic eggs look like plastic, um, that's exactly that 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 is the 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 natural outgrowth. It, it's the natural destination of a philosophy that fundamentally disrespects the the inherent uh, uh, un, unseen, unknown, almost, I don't want to say unknowable, but but certainly it's unknowable now, uh, you know, complexities of life. And so you're going to see artificiality. Uh, and, and you know, and, and that's one of the greatest lies right now. This whole fake meat, uh, lab meat uh, thing. That that you know, as long as there's grass and the rain and the rain comes and the sun shines, you can grow food in your backyard. But if our food comes from a billion dollar laboratory owned by Bill Gates, that is the most that that is the absolute most uh, ultimate undemocratic. Uh, uh, way to access food. If that's where our food comes from, we are then suddenly dependent on a on a system. We can't get make food in our backyard. We can't um, get our own sustenance. And if there's one thing that that is conducive to tyranny. And here I'll use the word conspiracy. It, it is it is moving the food system away from personal participatory uh, 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 participatory independence and moving it toward a centralized, uh, you know, a, a centralized controlled access. What challenges do you face right now? What what are the biggest challenges somebody like you? I'm thinking of the Amish, too, who are facing challenges. What are some of the things we need to learn from what you're going through? Well, I think I, when we talk about challenges, you know, I wrote a I wrote a book, Everything I Want to Do is Illegal. Yeah. And, and I, I think, you know, here, our biggest challenges for sure are are complying with uh, with government regulations, whether it's you know, um, you know, workman's comp, whether it's, you know, uh, having all of your I's dotted and your T's crossed, uh, having the right, you know, on taxes, on uh, insurance, on, uh, you know, the, the, the different licenses and things. Um, I mean, there are lots of things that we would like to do here on the farm. I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, it's illegal for So, so we have a sawmill. We have several hundred acres of of beautiful Appalachian forest. So this is walnut, cherry, uh, white oak, red oak. I mean, you know, we're in the heart of of Appalachia um, hardwood country. Uh, and we have a sawmill. 
that we use primarily to, you know, uh, mill our own logs to do our own building projects and things. And um, and it's legal for us to mill our own lumber. But if I turn that lumber into a chair and sell it, I'm a criminal because making a chair out of lumber is classified as manufacturing and manufacturing is illegal in an agriculture zone. We're zoned agriculture. So, uh, you know, those kinds of things, uh, you know, we, we would like to make, you know, meat pies for our customers, uh, but you have to have a commercial kitchen. And if you, and, and so, okay, so we call and say, can we put in a commercial kitchen? Well, what do we need? Well, you need uh, you need a approved uh, septic system. Well, what if we use a composting toilet? No, it has to be water-based, approved health department septic system. Well, suddenly, you know, to make one pot pie for somebody that wants it, you know, we've got to have a, you know, thirty dollars to $40,000 uh, infrastructure development system just to make somebody a pot pie. And so what people have to understand is that that these, these food regulations, A, they have nothing to do with, with quality of food. But B, they are extremely scale prejudicial, scale prejudicial. And no regulation, no regulation is is honorable uh, if it's scale prejudicial. I'll give you an example of, 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 of regulations that aren't scale prejudicial. For example, a speed limit. It takes just as much effort to put your foot on the gas and the brake of an 18-wheeler as it does a, a Toyota a Prius. Okay, uh, so that th- there's no prejudice in that in a speed limit regulation, but but these but most almost all of these uh, food regulations are highly scale prejudicial, and and so you can't um, so it, it makes it much more difficult, more expensive for a small operation to comply than it does a large one. That obviously. Prejudice is the marketplace because now our prices have to be higher, not because it costs us more to produce it, but because it costs us more. Look, if you've got to have a a $2,000 thermometer to pass the license for making charcuterie, for example, we want to make some charcuterie, you got to have a $2,000 thermometer to to comply with the government food safety regulations to make this. Well, a $2,000 thermometer is not a big deal if you're making a tractor trailer load of charcuterie. But if I'm making a five gallon bucket full, that $2,000 thermometer just became so expensive that I don't even start, I don't even start making charcuterie. That's the case. That is, um, you know, that, that is ubiquitous uh, throughout the food system. There are, there are thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurial um, farmers ready to access their neighborhoods with high quality food but these kinds of regulations preclude butchering cooking packaging you know doing the things that are necessary to get them into a retail form that people will like and so you know you deny people market access you, know, you can go out here and sh- and shoot a deer that's got uh, Crutzfeld Jakob's disease nobody checks for it uh, it's like the deer equivalent of mad cow you can shoot it on a 70 degree day, drag it through a mile through the squirrel dung and the sticks and rocks, and then put it on the front of your blazer and parade it pl- out proudly through town in the in the blazing afternoon sun, pull it up in the backyard, skin it, butcher it out, feed it to your kids, feed it to your neighbor's kids, and all that is being a great American. But if you if you butcher, you know, one beef 
animal and an appropriate temperature day using stainless steel and cleanliness, you can't, you can, you can give the meat away, but you can't sell one pound to a neighbor without being a criminal. So it's obviously not about food safety. It's about market access. And so the regulatory climate is the single biggest, you know, what keeps me up at night? It's, it's, what did I not sign? What did I not fill out? You know, what form did I not fill out? Because we have this 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 uh, technocracy um, that practices extortion uh, every day, and uh, on on us as as entrepreneurs, uh, where you know you're guilty until proven innocent, and uh, you know you try to fight some of these agencies, and it's a it's a hard road to hoe. That's David versus Goliath. I was in the, I was in a, a restaurant tour for 24 years and I tried my best to buy local, to buy from, you know, food supplies that were local, but they used to tell me it's, it's getting more and more difficult. And you mentioned your book, everything I want to do is illegal. So in, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the big premise of your book is that the government's regulations on food production and distribution favor large corporations and make it, ever so difficult for small businesses, small-scale local farmers to compete. What changes do you believe need to be made to the current regulatory system to, to, to really level the playing field for small farmers and allow more for consumer choice in the food marketplace? Well, the, the, single, the single most uh, valuable thing that I can imagine right now would simply be a and I'm going to use some powerful language here, a food emancipation proclamation. Uh, essentially, our food system right now is enslaved to a bureaucratic malaise of nefarious agendas financed by mega corporations for their own benefit to preclude uh, and uh, to either preclude or 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 uh, slow down uh, competition within the marketplace from upstarts like me. And so, a food emancipation proclamation would uh, free up uh, producers and buyers to be able to transact business independently of the of bureaucracy. That would that would explode both the stability, the quality, and the competitive pricing of the uh, regional you know, uh, more craft-based food system. You know, right now, uh, you know, we we can't raise uh, a pig here and process it and sell you a pork chop. Uh, it has to go to a federal inspected facility. Um, you know, we can't sell you a glass of raw milk. Uh, you know, we... Yeah, talk can't. about raw milk. Talk about raw milk because I get people calling me all the time saying, I can't sell my raw milk. I'm going to go to jail. And that's which one is healthier, the pasteurized milk or the raw milk? <laughs> well, there's no question which one's healthier. Um, so, you know, pasteurization came into vogue. It, it, again, th this is a great example of how, uh, you know, how blips blips in, in time um once the once the tentacles of the bureaucracy it, it whatever penetrate into something you know, they they never they never retract so during the from about 1870 
So the Industrial Revolution starts in, what, 1837 when Cyrus McCormick invents the, the Reaper. And uh, that's the official beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So, you know, we get up there into the 1870s, 1880s. We have, you know, factories developing. We have steel mills. Uh, you know, we we have urbanization developing. And, and so like all innovation, when you study innovation, what you have is the, the point of the spear of innovation. But then you have you you have a period of time uh, in which all of the 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 pieces to metabolize that innovation don't happen at the same time of the innovation i mean a, a great example in our lifetime more recently has been the explosion of uh, of e-commerce and you know um uh, most localities base their income on sales taxes, retail sales taxes. You hit the cash register, it adds a sales tax, and you know the state sends it back to the community, and it's you know builds schools and 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 does things uh, from the finance the government. Well, what happens when there's suddenly no cash register? There's no physical cash register. Suddenly, a and look, I don't I don't want taxes any more than anybody else, but I deeply appreciate the fact that if you have a structure to finance. Uh, government services, and suddenly that structure is gone because it's now happening on the internet. That's a real problem, and so that's why we're seeing. You know, it's taken us roughly, you know, fifteen to twenty years since the beginning of e-commerce to finally get it sorted out. Where businesses that do internet sales have to collect, you know, state sales tax and that sort of thing, you know, in order to keep it in order in order to uh, to make that happen. So, so you have this ragged edge. Uh, that, that takes a while to metabolize up to the you know up to the point of the spear. So here we were, 1870s to about 1915, 20, 1920, um, where we had urbanization prior to electrification, prior to refrigeration, prior to uh, stainless steel, hot water, you know, all these sanitary things, uh, uh, sewage pipe. All right, and and so as you had urbanization without refrigeration. Um, the the two most highly perishable food items are milk and beer, milk and beer. And so that's why we had uh, breweries developing in the city. So it was close to where the market was, didn't have to be transported or anything anywhere. It could be done right there quickly. Well, the 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 breweries generate a waste product called distiller's grains, DGS, distiller's grains. What are we going to do with that? Oh, well, let's put milk in the milk in the city too, since you know we don't want to transport it very far because we don't have refrigeration. And so we'll feed the cows distillers grains. And so these were called swill dairies. Distillers grains kind of comes out as a as a as a, a, a mash, a kind of a porridge, if you will. And so um kind of a swill. And so these were called swill dairies. Well, when you feed cows that brewery waste it changes the ph the acidity of the rumen and makes them open to all sorts of of um mammalian mammalian problems that come out in the milk tuberculosis and undulant fever and all sorts of things all right so here are people so we're, we're urbanizing ahead of sanitation and 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 so people are drinking milk from swill dairies and becoming sick. So the government has a decision. Well, do we do do we um, let people make their make their decisions and you know get milk from a different place, 
buyer beware? Do we regulate it? What do we do? And the government decided, you know what? Let's just require pasteurization and um, and we'll, we'll we'll kill the bad stuff and we don't have to worry about how dirty it is. It can be as dirty as dirty as anything and it won't kill anybody because because we've killed it with heat. And so you know that was so that became the protocol. And the Mayo, a lot of people don't realize the Mayo Clinic, which started around that time, the Mayo Clinic uh, developed its 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 um, uh, its efficacy. It, it, it was successful because the Mayo Clinic prescribed grass-based raw milk to patients, and suddenly they got they got well, they got better because pasteurization kills a lot of the the nutrition and the enzymes in milk. And, and and so so by the time we hit the, the 30s i mean let, let's let's even we i could even be you know uh, a democrat liberal for a minute and say boy i'm glad the government required pasteurization in because you know uh we had lives saved because of these these swill dairies but by the 1930s and 40s we had urban electrification we had uh sewer sewers were going in pipes uh we had refrigeration we had all of that and we and and we had a greater understanding of sanitation, hygiene, cleanliness around dairies and in milk, and and um, and it wasn't a the, the swill dairy ran out of uh, it 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 became obsolete. It became obsolete along with all of the problems that it it had created by having swill dairies. But the government didn't remove the mandatory pasteurization. The government didn't remove all of its requirements and compliance and licensing. And so here we are, you know, uh, almost a century later, and and we still are dealing with a a, a 40-year point-in-time problem uh, that a bureaucracy built up to deal with, and it's it's completely obsolete. There's no reason for it, and um, but here we are, and so now we're now we're denying people nutrition that comes from, uh, you know, nature's perfect food, which is you know, raw milk. I, I think just just to to finish that concept, it's important to understand that historically, the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker lived in a village often lived in the same building as their business and and the village voice the 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 rumor mill the uh the vetting that comes with with knowing who the crooks knowing who the charlatans and who the craftsmen are um created its own vetting for the butcher the baker and the candlestick maker but through industrialization the butcher baker and candlestick maker became so big that they they became opaque hidden behind razor wire and you know guard posts and uh and 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 cheating became very very uh common and so people decided well we need a government bigger than these industrial butcher baker candlestick makers so let's get a government and an agencies bigger to to you know to ride herd on them and control them and so that brings us up through you know the 40s the 50s and 60s well, now we have computers, and what's happened now is we've got a we've got a renewed, not a village voice, but a global voice via the internet 
I call this, it is time to Uberize our food system. You know, who would have guessed 30 years ago that millions of people around the planet would jump into a car with a a car that didn't have any special you know licensing requirements, a driver that didn't have any special licensing requirements, and, and say take me to you know some place uh, without knowing any background or, or anything. All the reason is because the the um, the, the monitoring the drivers could uh, could rate the passenger, the passenger could rate the driver all in real time in a transparent in a transparent way and and this created its own uh vetting its own protection its own authenticity within the system same with Airbnb i mean we're just seeing an explosion of what the democratization of of information and the transparency of auditing and monitoring has been able to do the sharing economy, uh, you know, ride sharing, all sorts of things. So the food system, here's my, my point. My point is that the food system can be Uberized as well. You know, if I sell a bad chicken to somebody, they're going to, I'm going to be excoriated on social media. Boom. I'm going to be out of business. And so when we take, when we Uberize the food system, we actually move the responsibility for the food supply away from the government and put it on the shoulders of the um, of the invisible hand of the marketplace, to use Adam Smith's terminology. And the beauty of that is that the food system is not now a a manipulated uh product of of a government orthodoxy and of course or, or monopoly know, or a monopoly of few exactly but a monopoly but now instead what we have is 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 a merit is, is a food meritocracy that allows quality craft the, the the good butcher baker and candlestick maker to be patronized and the poor ones to be run out of town and that's the way it ought to be. And I would suggest, too, that when you do that, you actually encourage discernment muscles. I think as a society, when you give over to the government all the decisions, well, you know, you, you just tell me who to who to buy from and who to go to, and, and, and I don't have to make that decision. Um, when you do that, you become extremely, uh, your, your, your discernment muscles atrophy. You literally become a a poor weak uh um manipulatable if that's a word uh hive mind a, a, yeah decision maker and so so by by taking personal responsibility even though it's spread across you know the whole society by taking personal responsibility suddenly we actually develop the interest the responsibility and become skilled we become masters at decision making and discernment and and i would suggest that that uh, ultimately is the better approach than just trusting in government agencies to take care of us joel i love the way you think we have to take a one and only break and before the break i just want to say this because you mentioned the mayo clinic in the past couple of years, and I'll share this with, with the public, in the past couple of years, I've received a lot of subscriptions coming from, I'm surprised they're using their Mayo emails to subscribe to, to our platform. And I couldn't resist a few weeks ago, one of them subscribed and I 
decided to reach out and call the person. And I said, why is it that this influx of people from Mayo subscribing? And he said, well, after the pandemic, we have a large group within the organization throughout the United States listening to you because we're not getting the truth anywhere else. So during lunchtime, we all gather around in secrecy and discuss your podcast. So FYI there, folks. And I have to say, when we come back, because obviously this is a solutions-based podcast, in times of crisis, Joel, what are some tips you have for individuals and families to better be prepared for food supply disruptions? And if you live in the urban zone, don't think that you can't produce your own produce. There's ways to do that. But Joel, how can people buy your products, your books, and all your, how can they get in touch with your services? Uh, yeah, well, um, you know, we have a website, Polyface Farms, P-O-L-Y-F-A-C-E. It's the farm of many faces. Polyface Farms, we have a complete website. Uh, you can, you, we, we ship, we ship nationwide. Uh, and you can get our books there. You can come to seminars. We have gatherings. Uh, we have uh, farm tours. They're called the Lunatic Tours because uh, yeah, I'm the lunatic. And uh, so, you know, we, we yeah, we get the, the website has lots and lots of good information. Go visit it. So you're telling me that I can buy eggs and meat products from you too? Uh, we, we can't ship eggs. They're just too yeah. too hard. And we have, we have a, almost a, we've looked at the packaging required for eggs and we just, we almost just can't do it. It's almost uh, cost prohibitive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's almost immoral uh, to to put that kind of packaging around an egg, especially something that's like a chicken that it's so easy to you know to to have in a in a in your, in your, even in your house. Um, but but yeah, but our our, our meat, uh, uh, turkey, chicken, beef, pork, uh, all that we ship nationwide, and um, we're glad glad to we ship every Tuesday of every week and. Um, yeah, it, it goes right to you. This is such a great treat here. Joel Sellerton and his expertise. Once we come back, one more hour to come. We're here with the world's most famous farmer. This is Mel Hustlerick, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at VeritasRadio.com. Subscribe today. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy. Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today. We also have rebounders, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Veritas and Sanitas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, Just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share the video. Click on the notification button to be alerted when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What I hate is a statesman Speaking out of both sides of his mouth The 
what I hated War still going on down in the south What I live for is a chance to change A little bit of it all What I hate is Most folks don't seem to care at all What I hate is Looking up and seeing Chemtrails in a clear blue sky today What I hate is Hitting roadblocks on a highway in my way And what I live for is a chance to change and be Everything I can be What I love is Someone Bright enough to see What I hate is What I hate And I always will What I hate is Someone Mad enough to kill What I love is Someone With a heart that's Really good Now we can't change the whole wide world Maybe we can change our neighborhood